This is Paul Adamson and I'm in conversation with Frederick Eriksson. Frederick Eriksson is the director of the think tank, the European Centre for International Political Economy, ESIP. Frederick, we're here to talk about your, your new book you've written with uh, Bjorn Weigel, The Innovation Illusion, or How So Little Is Created By So Many Working So Hard. You said uh, in the past on this topic, Western capitalism has lost its mojo. What do you mean by that? Well, a number of things. I mean, first of all, if we look at Western economies, and by Western economies I mean Western Europe, North America, the type of economies that really are at the frontier of new technology, innovation, productivity, etc., many of those have lost their taste for growth over the past 40, 50 years. So what we're doing in the book is trying to document a longer-term trend with falling growth in GDP per capita in virtually all these economies, a falling trend of uh, productivity growth where in a region like Europe you have effectively shaved off roughly one percentage point of productivity growth per decade since the 1970s. We have seen that companies are investing a smaller share of the total revenues, that they their expenditures on real R&D as share of their expenditures have also gone down. And what we're trying to do is to link back this sort of dreary economic trend to behavior in the corporate world where companies have become even more addicted to predictability, a world which is predictable, where they cannot sort of make investments in innovation or other forms of investments that may pay off sort of in 10 or 15 years time because that future is too unpredictable. Uh, They have owners, investment institutions that demand that they need to deliver returns in two or three years, not in 10 or 15 years. So the corporate world has become less engaged in trying to shape the future of economies with innovation, real innovations, and with other forms of economic behavior that raises investments, productivity growth, and at the end of it, GDP per capita in the Western Western world. Okay, as I understand it, innovation is, is not just about technology and technological advancements, it's also about the role of regulation, it's about the role of corporate culture, risk aversion, and what do you mean by that? Well, sort of, if you look at the world today, I mean, we see around us a number of new, really, really promising technological developments with everything from artificial intelligence to service robots to self-driving cars, etc. Many of these technologies we're talking about, they are an input to the economy. They're not an output. And innovation is about an output. It's about trying to get a change in the economy which forces businesses, investors, labor, governments to behave better, to behave much more productively than than they've done in the past. So even if we don't have a reliable measure on how inventive societies are and if the degree of inventiveness really has changed over, say, the last 50 years. No one really knows if that's the case or not. But what we do know is that when new technologies or when other forms of new inputs come to the economy, it is much more difficult to actually force change upon the economy than it were in the past. And that's also why we see smaller economic payoffs from the inventions that actually come and from the technological change that we actually can witness in the economy. We had a period in the 1990s, so you can say from 
1995 up to the early noughties when there were real change in the economy and you could see that in all sorts of economic observations and it was because of the ICT revolution but from sort of the early noughties everything started to peter off so its contribution to productivity growth, its contribution to investment etc started to decline again and and despite the fact sort of we have now all this talk about sort of the, the emergence or the growth of the digital economy we have all the debates around robots, artificial intelligence, etc. We actually don't see much in the economic data that this is going on, that change is actually happening in the economy to such a degree that we become much more productive. You also talk about how newer versions of globalization have made companies defensive. First of all, what are these new versions of globalization and what form does this defensiveness of companies take? Well, sort of if you think about globalization in different phases, um, we had the first phase where uh, markets began to open up, when transportation technologies allowed for a lot more change, when sort of containerization suddenly made it possible to actually trade at fairly long distance with a lot of products that couldn't be traded in the past. What that did was to open up markets for a lot more new competition, or what you can call even the contestability of markets. So you usually had foreign multinationals stepping into markets which previously had been dominated by national or local incumbents and they forced a lot of change on that economy just by offering that new sort of competition. Um, but the later phase of globalization was far more connected to um, sort of a fragmentation of supply chains, um, a globalization of supplies and value chains where uh, the big companies they largely sort of outsourced a lot of the, uh, the de facto production of the products they were producing to, to others, and they concentrated their resources much more on trying to control markets, trying to control the end markets, and sort of sitting at the top of these highly sophisticated value chains, uh, they had an, a new opportunity to avoid uh, competition by raising entry barriers to markets. So they could focus on sort of branding, on market positioning, on uh, using their capital stock and their R&D stock in a way which basically makes it extraordinarily difficult for a new entrepreneur that comes with a new technology to actually step into that market and compete with them. And um, during, that during this phase we also saw that many of these companies became much, much bigger. The, the market concentration has gone up in virtually all markets around the world. It's far more difficult to compete with these companies today. Uh, I'm not saying that this is necessarily a bad thing, it's just that sort of an explanation to why it is more difficult today to actually step into new markets with new technologies and get you, your market position there because you have incumbents with strong market positions and sometimes also uh, assistance from governments to well, avoid new Well, on that precise point, Frederick, I'll just interrupt you, you talk about competition and, and at the end the role of governments. You also say that unimaginably complex regulation and the return of classic economic regulation mm. have distorted competition. So it's not just corporate behaviour, it's also governments or the regulatory environment also stepping into the frame and, and doing its part to, in your words, distort competition. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, I think there are two, two regulatory trends that we talk about in the book which I think are important. The first one is uh, sort of a 
it's not a 40, 50 year development, it's rather about what's been going on in the Western economies over the past 20 years, that we have for a long time lived with this perception about a Western economy that since the 1970s had opened up for much more competition and entrepreneurship in the economy. And, and that's, that was basically true if you sort of look at North America and Western Europe up, up to sort of the late 1990s. But ever since then, we have been on an opposite track uh, where classic economic regulations, product market regulations, uh, licenses and, and sort, of, uh, res sort of restrictions that makes it far more difficult to step in and compete on the market, they have started to go up again. Uh, so that's the first type of regulatory trend we have seen uh, which is making it more difficult to actually compete and to try to contest markets. But related to that, and perhaps a bit different as well, is that we've also seen a longer term trend um, in both North America and in Western Europe where we're trying to respond to an increasingly complex world by making regulations complex. And complex regulations, in my view, are regulations which are they're pretty non-transparent in the sense that it's just very difficult to understand what sort of behavior they instruct. So what should you do to be sort of on the safe side of regulation? What, can, what can't you do uh, in accordance with these regulations? Um, and that leads to sort of companies having to spend a lot of costs on trying to understand regulation. But the, I think the important point here is basically is that companies, whether they are old or new companies, if they are confronted with a regulatory reality which is complex and is giving them sort of uh, uh, difficulties understanding whether a new technology that you may be developing or a new innovation that you think you can sort of break the market with, if they think that these technologies may actually not be allowed on the markets that's going to basically stop an entire development process at a very early phase in a company. So what we've seen inside companies as a consequence of these regulatory trends is that they reallocate resources between big innovation to safe innovation, between radical breakthrough innovation to innovation which is incremental, safe, and you know that at the end of the development process of this new product, you're not going to be confronted by a regulator that say, sorry, you're not allowed to sell your products on that market. Okay, but throughout you keep talking about Western capitalism or Western business, Western economies, and, and not make any kind of distinction between Europe on the one hand and North America on the other. So you're saying in a sense, without putting words in your mouth, that the problems are that more, almost identical on both sides of the Atlantic? I would say they are. Um, and I would say that America and Europe, even if there are still differences between these two regions, both in terms of corporate culture, regulatory culture, and the capacity of these economies to really combust on innovation, these trends are similar. So Europe and America have become more like each other over the past 30, 40 years. And in many ways, sort of I, and what we're trying to do in the book as well, is to argue against this very stereotypical picture that exists about regulation in America and Europe where we believe that Europe is overregulated and America is underregulated, in many sectors it's actually the opposite way around. So uh, Europe is less regulated in some sectors compared to oh, the United absolutely, States? Absolutely. And, and it's also, it's not just sort of the degree of regulation, it's also what type of regulation, whether you have regulations that 
is actually understandable to people, to entrepreneurs. Okay, we talked a lot about the diagnosis, and I'm sure in your book you have lots of solutions, but uh, let's finish off as my final question um, about some of, how to address some of these problems you, you describe in, uh, in your book. I mean, cynics, critics might say that you're basically making a, an argument for kind of a free market, a free-for-all, uh, and little regulation as possible. How do you, would you respond to that? Um, well, I mean, that's not what we propose in the book. Um, so the purpose of this book, the idea of the book, is trying to alert people to sort of a reality which both my co-author and I think we have seen over a longer period of time, but which sort of we don't think a lot of other people agree with us. So every time we talk about what is going on innovation-wise in the economy right now, we are confronted with the people that sort of are clearly irritated with what we have to say because it's just sort of it collides with their perception about we living in perhaps the most innovative age ever in history. Um, so we are on a mission to try to get people to understand a problem even if we can't really see that there are immediate solutions to, to these problems. We go at the end of the book into a couple of sort of areas where we think um, there has to be changes and uh, one of those areas we're talking about is about ownership and it's about the role of investment institutions, the role played by sovereign wealth funds and other in the ownership of companies. One of the problems that we're trying to point to is that the sort of capitalism we have right now is a faceless capitalism where we don't really know who owns the companies and if we don't know who owns the companies we don't really know what the owners want. We don't really know if there is sort of a commercial business idea with what they want to achieve with this company. What we know, and this comes of course not just from academic studies, but just watching the reality is that you have a lot of investment institutions, asset manager, pension funds, etc., that put a lot of money into companies, but they just borrow in stock. They don't make sort of an investment into trying to make a successful company. And have a long-term strategy to go with exactly. that investment. Exactly. So they borrow in stock, uh, they invest perhaps sort of in, in three competing companies at the same time. So it's not that you invest in you, you invest in your competitor as well. And, <laughs> and, and I think that sort of points to some of the contradictions with this type of ownership that you get owners that do not really tend to think in long-term strategies about how we're going to make a successful business 10 or 15 years from now, what type of technologies and innovations do we need to work with in order to be successful? And how do you fix that with policy? Well, it's, it's going to be extremely difficult to do it because it's, you know, at the end, an issue about sort of uh, who invests in company. What you can do is to begin to think about allowing more firms to uh, have differentiate, differentiated uh, stocks. Yeah, so you sure. have sort of different, uh, different voting rights that comes with different shares. Um, you can think about perhaps putting restrictions on uh, how much of a company that a pension fund actually can own. Um, so it's it's not sort of, we're not trying to do this book is sort of to, to come to sort of the immediate sort of free market solution to it because I don't think there are immediate free market solutions to it. I think there are lots of free market reforms you can do in order to increase sort of the dynamism generally and to increase the space for economic experimentation in the economy. Um, but there are lots of problems which sort of, I mean, they link back to a different set of problems that cannot be solved.
perhaps not with policy at all. It's about change in the corporate world, rather, rather change in the policy world. Frederick Erickson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.